Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. I do hope your fall birding is to your satisfaction in this, the latter half of September. It should really be popping off, as the kids say, all over the continent right now. The ABA is looking forward to celebrating fall migration with you at a couple of festivals, events this fall. We might see you there. Statistically speaking, we should see at least a few of you. The Cape May Fall Festival is coming in October. It is the 13th through the 16th. Cape May is one of the continent's great migration hotspots and practically in the ABA's backyard. Our headquarters, at least nominally, is across the Delaware Bay in Delaware City. Of course, we have staff scattered hither and yon across the United States. We will have a good presence there. Kelly, of course, uh, our new ED, Nikki Belmonte, plus Steve Sebastian and Laura Garrard, both of whom are local New Jerseyans, New Jerseyites, Jersians. I don't know. I don't know what the collective term is for New Jersey folks. Anyway, come and say hello. We'll be there. And also, there's the big birder to do of the fall, the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival in Harlingen, Texas. It's the 9th of November through the 13th. We'll be there too. Kelly also, Kelly Smith, Nikki, maybe me. We'll see. I am I'm currently planning on attending. Might be on some trips. I'll let you know more as we get closer to the actual festival. As always, please come and say hello. Meet the new ED. Learn about the ABA. Get some swag. All of that is possible. We love to meet members and listeners. It's always good to interact with people outside of the hot take cauldron of the internet. Speaking of hot takes, there's no one on the ABA staff quite as full of them as birding editor Ted Floyd. If you don't believe me, you should see our internal slack. Ted and I were both in the tropics recently, and we reminisce about it in the next installment of our eBird annotated series. All that after this week's Redbirds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of September 2022. What a week for the Bering Sea. Weather watchers had their eye on the area with both trepidation and excitement this week with the arrival of a massive storm, the remnants of Typhoon Murbach, the strongest in a decade that brought hurricane-force winds to the area. While big storms are not completely unheard of in the Bering Sea, this is the first time in memory that one happened early enough in the season that birders were still on the islands of St. Paul and St. Lawrence to experience it. And though we get excited about the burning potential of these storms, the human element cannot be ignored. The storm brought massive rain, storm surges, and flooding to mainland Alaska, particularly around Nome. The days leading up to the storm were filled with shorebirds and passerine vagrants on both islands. Birders on St. Paul and the Pribilofs recorded Eurasian bullfinch, taiga flycatcher, spotted redshank, and gray wagtail, all of which are very rare, some of which have not been seen in about a decade on St. Paul. And around Gamble on St. Lawrence Island, birders found gray-streaked flycatcher, Blythe's reed warbler, Pechora pipit, and Siberian stonechat, possibly of the Amur 
subspecies split by Ebert Clements, but not by the AOS. Notably, but perhaps not surprisingly, none of those birds are firsts for Alaska, the only state or province with multiple records of all of those Asian goodies. But there was a first record that came from the mainland, Seward to be specific, where a citrine wagtail represented Alaska's first and the ABA area's fourth. Citrine wagtail is one of the great head scratchers on the ABA list. The first record came in 1992 in Starkville, Mississippi, of all places, and it wasn't until 20 years later that a second was found on Vancouver Island, British Columbia, slightly more reasonable place for such a vagrant. Yet another came in 2017 in Yolo County, California, hashtag Yolo, and finally, now in Alaska, where such things are at least theoretically more plausible. Those are the highlights of the week, but for a full accounting, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. I am joined once more by my ABA colleague, Ted Floyd, one of the editors of Birding Magazine and perhaps the longest standing staffer of the American Birding Association. Um, we're here to do another one of our regular features, um, sort of a crapshoot which one we're going to go for on any given time. Uh, but this is going to be one of our eBird annotated features. Uh, I'll explain what that means in just a second. But first of all, welcome, Ted. Hello. Good to have you back. Thank you, Nate. Thank you for having me. Right. So eBird Annotated is essentially um, a bit where Ted and I take eBird checklists from recent birding excursions, and we basically share them with each other. And we uh, we talk about it. We talk about our experiences, the birds that we saw, why we find them interesting, what we find interesting about each other's eBird checklists. And of course, you know, with eBird uh, adding the feature to add so much media and trip reports and all sorts of extra doodads to people's checklists. Uh, you can actually make a really fantastic trip report on an eBird yeah. checklist these days. Ted, we were both in the tropics recently. I was in Panama for one of the ABA's ABA travel excursions. Uh, we were with the Canopy family, uh, Canopy Lodge and Canopy Tower. And uh, where were you? Right, so I was in a uh, in an adjoining country. I was mm-hmm. in uh, Colombia. So uh, Colombia is sort of the uh, pretty much the farthest northwest country in South America, and then um, Panama is the farthest sort of south. That's right. East country in Middle That's America, right. uh, and they abut uh, one another. And actually, uh, sh- you know, there are a lot of differences, but they they share a fair bit in common, including uh, geographic. Uh, proximity. Sure. And, you know, it is sort of interesting just based on the the vagaries of chance that we are both in these sort of adjoining countries. Yeah. Um, they share uh, a literal and figurative uh, bridge <laughs> between the two of them. I don't know how many people, listeners out there, are aware of the Great American Biotic Interchange, uh, this massive moment in biodiversity in the world where uh, basically South America and North America crash together. I don't know if they crashed. It's slow motion crash. Slow really motion happened. crash. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> and the Isthmus of Panama, it happened only about three and a half million years ago, which uh, is, is sort of like a blink of an eye in geological terms. And it sort of links these two countries inextricably uh, in terms of bird life and, and, you know, just biodiversity in general. Yeah. So we have these, you know, 
um, very artificial geopolitical distinctions between mm-hmm. you know North America, which I extend here to, all the way to the uh, the Panamanian Colombian border, mm-hmm. and then South America. But uh, just as you said, uh, there are uh, there's a lot of uh, mushiness, a lot of overlap, and, and also, <laughs> sure. and also not, I don't mean to say that um, sort of there's also like an emergent property of just like tremendous biodiversity generated as a result of that. So sort of like yeah, as you sort of pick up, especially like starting in a like Eastern Costa Rica and then throughout Panama and then especially into sort of where Panama and mm-hmm. uh, Colombia sort of a collide, as you say, um, yeah. just a, an incredible genesis of, of biodiversity. Yeah. There, there's a, there's a land bridge and there's an actual physical human made bridge that crosses yeah. the uh, Panama canal that right. uh, at least the Panamanians say is the bridge between the Americas. I don't know whether that means mm-hmm. that I spent the first part of our trip in South America on the east side of the right, <laughs> Panama right. Canal yeah. and the other half in North America in the uh, west side of the Panama west side of the Panama Canal but uh, I, I don't the birds were different but there was a lot of similarities there it's sure. only a you know less than 100 miles difference as far yeah. as I'm and concerned. something I, I ought to note here for your sake Nate but also for anybody else's is yeah. that I was about as far from Panama in Colombia well that's not wow. true but okay. I was quite some distance from 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 Panama so I was in the um far far southern part of the country and um okay so wow. in, in amazonia it, yeah well so there actually is a state uh, amazonas which mm-hmm. uh, i was not in but i was in the state one to the uh, sorry the department of uh, one okay, to the right. west there so i was in putamayo state and just to put things in perspective that's basically the department in colombia where um colombia peru and ecuador all come together so okay. just the picture like on a map of south america you know so colombia sorry, excuse me ecuador and peru lie south of colombia but they abut each other and they form like a t intersection uh with uh with colombia and then putamayo's uh, department is where we were yeah three of the the birdiest countries in, that's right uh, in yeah so world. i was yeah I yes I, I was at that triple witching point of uh, ecuador um peru and colombia which is i was gonna exciting. say there, there must be some sort of uh interesting historical or uh, political reasons for that that intersection but i i don't know what it is i would <laughs> guess it has to do with like mountains and rivers but yeah, I, I, I i honestly don't know yeah yeah so um ted why were you in Colombia? right so i was uh, a guest of uh, three i would say sort of aba adjacent organizations mm-hmm. uh, groups sure. that we have partnered with in uh, different ways so um uh, equipment for the or, uh, for the um, the week, not even a week, uh, four or five days in, in Colombia was uh, ge- very generously provided by a uh, Soroski Optique, and they played an important uh, role in the uh, the event. Um, our uh, guides were provided um, by uh, Mannequin Nature Tours, which is a, a Colombian-based um, uh, bird and nature organization uh, that's actually um, doing work now well beyond Colombia, but I think Colombia is very near and dear uh, to Mannequin Nature Surely. Tours. Uh, and then. Um, an outfit called uh, Pro Colombia, which I had heard of, but I really mm-hmm. got to see in action. So the best I can say about, Pro, you know, the, well, lots of good things, but that, to, just to sort of distill it, they're sort of like the, um, almost like the Chamber of Commerce <laughs> yeah. for, 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 yeah. for, for Colombia. Um, but what's cool is, you know, uh, uh, they have a huge emphasis on uh, nature tourism um, and, and not, not just birding, but um, in the, the welcome pack that we got from them, what was, I thought was so cool. Every one of us got a brand new copy of the just published uh, Endemic Butterflies of Costa Rica. Oh, sorry, of, of Colombia. Sorry about that. The Endemic Butterflies of Colombia. And this is like a massive book with mm-hmm. like hundreds of species of butterflies. In it. And it, I would expect usually something like, you know, I don't know, you know, some really generic, fluffy piece on, you know, I, you know, just, you know, rafting or something like that. And right. it's like this exquisite, incredibly well done book in both Spanish and English, by the way, on all of the endemic butterflies of um, Colombia. I just thought it was so cool that like that's where Pro Colombia is really sort of uh, putting its emphasis. 
Yeah, I have been uh, the guest of Pro Columbia in Columbia in the past as well, and I, I can't I echo that. Uh, they, they do a fantastic job, and it is really uh, gratifying to see a country so uh, lean so hard into their ecotourism industry and the potential of that ecotourism industry. Um, it's Columbia has been doing a fantastic job. Um, Panama, too, for that matter. Well, <laughs> yes. the Canopy family in Panama, I should yeah. say, um, they are um, synonymous in the minds of many birders, right. and they do a fantastic job. Um, I was there with an ABA travel event. It was it was great. We had, a, we had a relatively small group of birders, and we had a an amazing time uh, with the guidance of Carlos Betancourt, who is well known uh, to birders who travel to events throughout the throughout North America. Tra- Carlos definitely in the world. Jeez, Carlos gets yeah, around, right. and I, I am happy to say that he is uh, every bit as uh, fantastic a guide as one would expect. So, with that out of the way, let's talk about these checklists that we pulled up, Ted. Um, I have pulled two checklists from September 9th and September 10th. Uh, they were both taken in areas that we accessed from Canopy Lodge, which is on the west side of the Panama Canal in the Valle de Anton, which is in the caldera of an ancient volcano. Uh, the lodge is actually in the middle of that uh, that caldera. And when you bird there, you sort of travel up into the highlands sort of immediately around it. I say highlands sort of loosely. It's certainly not Andean highlands like what you'd expect in Colombia. All I can say, I don't know exactly how high we are. All, we were, all I can say is that the weather was uh, very pleasant in both of these places uh, and very enjoyable. It was a really fun, fun time to bird. Where did, where did yours come from, Ted? So the one checklist I'm going to be uh, sharing with the group, and they, I think we are going to put these online. So the we will. We will share right them with our, with our listeners, uh, yes. So it is from a little bit before the time you were there, although not by even two weeks. I was there on uh, August 27th, it looks like, um, at a um, place in the lowlands, so in, in Amazonia, uh, called mm-hmm. Playa Rica, which is a, a brand new lodge, I, I guess, uh, a very small lodge uh, that accommodates small groups um, on the shores of the Putumayo River. So uh, I, elevation would have been, you know, just a few hundred meters, if that, above sea level. So it was uh, quite hot, but um, shady and, uh, mm-hmm. and and very pleasant. So uh, basically on the, um, the shores of um, one of the tributaries of the Amazon River. Super. I, I should say that mine were from uh, Altos de Maria, a place called uh, Valle Bonito, which beautiful valley. And it was, I do have the name, is, is well taken. And uh, another place called uh, Finca Candelario, which is a private property that is maintained by, you know, private private folks, but which the, the Canopy family actually pays the owners of this property to not only, they, they do have a small farming operation, but they also pay them to maintain the forests immediately around it. And we went birding in those forests. They have a nice system of trails there. It's, 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 it's a cool way of, you know, these lodges, ecotourism actually benefiting local people and local habitats, which is neat. Yeah, so it sounds like a, even though we were in different countries and on sort of different mm-hmm. corners of the, our con- respective countries as well, it's sort of a very convergent human experience there. And I, I um, don't quote me on all of this, although I realize I'm an heir and everybody will hear me say this, but because I'm, I'm not co- completely sure of the details, but we were there essentially for the grand opening of, mm-hmm. of uh, Playa Rica. Um, uh, maybe we were the second clients or something uh, like that, but it was really neat to see a place that was just being sort of um, unveiled for the first time and did, did, well, uh, a concrete trail that was very easy and safe to walk on and mm-hmm. excellent access to birds and superb viewing and uh, wonderful food was brought to us in the jungle, you know, mm-hmm. halfway through the day, which always was pretty nice. cool. Yeah, yeah, always nice. So it was a, really a marvelous experience. And I will say, Ted, um, the reason that we did not decide to do the random number generator, random birds thing yeah. with this is because you were concerned that there would be too few birds 
uh, overlapping between right. our our Panama list and our Columbia list. And I'm yeah. I'm telling you, Ted, I'm looking at this checklist, and there's a lot more overlap That's than I necessarily would have expected, including some really interesting birds. Mm. Um, we can talk about that a little yeah. bit. So let's let's do that. I'm yeah, looking well, I, at your checklist. I, I was yeah. thinking about that. Um, actually, no, this is a bird that's not going to be on my checklist, but I mm-hmm. think I saw, and I know we saw it elsewhere in, in Colombia. But you you had swallowtailed kite on one of those. Oh, lists. many many right right right, right right. Yes. And um, so this is just a you know, well, you especially being in the southeastern U.S. Mm-hmm. have access to swallowtailed kites and all that. Uh, less get, than I'd like. But yes. I, I understand. <laughs> okay, and I although I don't get them in Colorado, I can you know I can get to swallowtailed kites if I really want to. I was the only person in this entire event uh, who was from North America. Mm-hmm. Everybody else was South American or, or uh, European. And we had a flock of about, uh, well, we actually counted them. I think it was 22 uh, swallowtail mm-hmm. kites going over. And I, I don't want to misrepresent my, uh, my friends from, <laughs> from, 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 from Europe, but that was like the highlight of the trip for them. Like swallow, tw- seeing 22 swallowtailed kites swooping and diving in a very kind of ominous, cloudy, you know, drizzly um, mm-hmm. setting. It was just overpowering. And um, I just realized we have a really cool bird in yeah. common, not only between Panama and Colombia, but, you know, across the southeastern U.S. as well. So um, it was kind of cool. A swallowtailed kite really was a, a highlight for folks, especially from Europe. Oh, and for good reason. It's such a fantastic bird. Yeah. And we, we saw so many of them too. And uh, my group was was um, all North Americans. Mm. And swallowtail oh. kites, the flocks of swallowtail kites were, were, you know, highlights of their trips as well. We mm. saw them almost every single day yeah. um, here and there. That, you know, how, do you, how do you not, how do you get tired, you don't, of these amazing old colored birds with a wild long tail just kind of coursing around over the... Over everything, over they're all over the place. Yeah, I think Nate, Nate you're, you're aware that I'm working on um, some uh, field guides, and uh, for the uh, similar species section for uh, for a uh, swallowtail kite, the only thing I could come up with was magnificent frigate bird. Yeah, well, uh, we saw those too. Yeah, because the sub adults are, you know, they're they're incredibly long winged and four tailed uh-huh. and sort of black and white. And you know, I, I think I was quick to point out, like, you probably aren't going to confuse these two, but yeah, the swallowtail kite is just so distinctive. I just mm-hmm. there's nothing like it. I just point out, like, if you are on the Canopy Tower, which mm-hmm. overlooks the Panama Canal and looks out over Panama City, you can see the Pacific Ocean from the top of the Canopy Tower. You will get both Magnificent Frigate Bird and Swallowtail Kite. Oh, so they are, they are possible. Together. That's yeah. really cool. I don't know that yeah. I've ever seen those two together and in my life. And funnily enough, <laughs> you know, we, all, we frequently think of Magnificent Frigate Bird as being a bird that is almost entirely airborne, almost never lands. Right. Um, I did not see a Swallowtail Kite in a tree. I saw them flying every time, but we did see magnificent frigate birds sitting in a tree. When yep. We went by the uh, Pacific ocean. We stopped by the coast for some birding. So, so they know, do land. How about yeah, that? They do that. They do <laughs> the small cool. kites. It's still up in the air. Like literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there are, there are a lot of other interesting birds that we saw together. I, I'm, I'm just glancing through your list. Um, mm-hmm. short tailed swift. We saw short tailed swift, mm-hmm. um, deep bird, Southern lapwings. Okay. All over the place and loud and um, mm-hmm. yeah, waddle jacana, cormorant, refreshing tiger heron. There's like five birds in a row right here in the middle that we had uh, across our list, and of course the the kind of black and white headed flycatchers. A lot of overlap mm-hmm. there. Yep. Um, ferruginous pygmyal. We oh, had yep. ferruginous pygmyal as well. Yep. Um, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap as you would expect between two neighboring countries, I suppose. Yeah, so if I heard you right and you rattled off a bunch of bird names, but I think the first two you said were short-tailed swift and southern lapwing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, just, I'll use that those as sort of like the uh, yin and yang of like uh, for, for me like neotropical <laughs> birding. Um, yeah. 
over the years, I've come to think of the Swifts as the neotropical Swifts as like the hardest group of birds they're, they're on, really on earth. Like, like, show me a diving petrel, show me a tapaculo, show me a molting silent epid. And at least like you can get to within, you know, 100 feet of them. Yeah. But I mean, these Swifts are like barreling over the rainforest, totally you know, agree. hundreds of feet high, and you know, good luck hearing them. And they're just shadows up there. So, um, you know, Versus the southern lapwing, which I love southern lapwings, don't get me wrong, but <laughs> talk about the easiest bird to identify. Yeah. You, you can hear them diagnostically at like half a mile away. They're unbelievably <laughs> noisy. Uh, they're large. They're, 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 they're big shorebirds. You know, the people on our trip were, were sort of shocked by how, the size they are, of yeah. the southern lapwing. They were sort of expecting something kill their size yeah, and not something and, and, that was about three times bigger. And they're colorful yeah. and um, they're typically out in the open uh, or up in the sky, but, but, you know, but not far up, you know, kind of down mm-hmm. near above your heads. But you know, just funny that the first two birds you mentioned were kind of like the bird that like induces terror in me in terms of bird identification, which is <laughs> neotropical Swiss, yeah, followed sure. by what might be about the easiest bird to identify in all of yeah. South America, which is kind yeah. of funny. One of the things that I did want to point out on my own checklist is the fact that um I was I was the designated e-birder for okay. the trip. And so I was tasked with trying to trying to keep track of all the eBird lists and all the things for the, for our participants. And um, one of the things that's sort of interesting about that is when you're, when you're creating an eBird list in the field, you're trying to get everything, every single bird that is called out, you're trying to get in there because someone noted it. But um, on the checklist, the Via Bonito checklist, um, we were, we were just about to have lunch. We were going to walk a little trail around this pond. And uh, there were two fly catchers that Carlos kind of called out of the blue. Um, Heard only. We tried to get them close, but they never would. And that was um, eye-ringed flatbill, which oh, is yeah. a gloriously Muppety-looking uh, bird. And I assume. I didn't see it. And um, white-throated spadebill, which oh, yeah. is actually a slightly, very, very similarly Muppety-looking flycatcher with a big bill. And I did not, I could not get on the eye-ringed flatbill. I, um, I didn't hear it. I, I, I tried. I couldn't, I couldn't get it. Um, it reminds me of one of the truths of tropical birding, which is that no matter how much you try, if you go down there with a group of people, you are never going to see everything. And you just have to sort of make peace with that. Yeah. Um, and I have made peace with that. And, mm-hmm. and when I made peace with it was um, actually a couple of decades ago, I think I was with Dave Wolf, um, you know, a well-known uh, neotropical tour leader. And we were up in actually a part of Peru that was fairly close to, to Putumayo, where I was. Mm-hmm. And it had been one of those very kind of quiet afternoons where like nothing was happening. Then all of a sudden this... um this mixed species flock just descended upon us. And it, it was chaos. There were tanagers yeah. and yep. ant birds and hummingbirds and flycatchers and it just it, on and on and on. I remember um, Dave was valiantly, um, I think it was Dave, I could be, I'm pretty sure it was Dave, was, was valiantly like calling out the names of all of the birds. <laughs> and um, at one point he just said, every man for himself. <laughs> and uh, which I think was pretty, pr- pretty fair. They were just like, too many birds and not enough birders and not yeah. enough eyes. And um, it was still an incredibly spectacular, memorable experience. But no, I, I, I know what you mean. It can happen so fast and furious uh, with, uh, with tropical birding that way. Yeah, there's, there's, just, there's just no way around it. And um, sometimes you're going to miss some cool stuff and that stinks. But um, hopefully the balance of the trip, you're going to be able to see most of most of everything that you want to see. Sure. Uh, and it gives you an excuse to go back. Yes. Yep. Ted, what was your what was probably the most interesting bird that you you saw on this on this checklist of yours from um, from? Yeah. Bio-region? So um, interesting. I mean, as in terms. Well, oh, I suppose they're all sort of interesting. Yeah. But... So I don't really have the um, 
the regional status and distribution, you know, mm-hmm. acumen to be able to say. But so, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this personal <laughs> for, 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 for you, actually. So, um, and again, we're on this um, August 27th checklist. I think these, let me just make sure these birds are here. So, yeah, there's the Tinamu, and uh, I think we had the Wood Creeper there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So two birds that I um, encountered about 20 years ago for the first time were long-billed woodcreeper and um, undulated tinamou. This was in Peru mm-hmm. at about the same time. And they just made incredibly powerful, indelible, permanent, you know, long-lasting impressions on me. But um, that was before my camera days and before my smartphone days and before mm-hmm. my um, uh, audio, you know, pocket audio recorder days. And they're just memories for me. Mm-hmm. And um it was so cool to find them again and to be able to create, you know, media for everybody uh, in yeah. the world to see. So when, when folks go to that checklist, though, um, for the Tinamou, which I barely saw, but certainly heard, there's a pretty good recording of it there. And then for the wood creeper, that bird just stayed in place forever. And we were all able to get um, a video and audio and, and not in my case, you know, poor, average photos in for me, but some really great photos for other people. And it was just mm-hmm. really, really cool for me to be able to, you know, relive those birds, I guess, 20 years later, um, but this time to be able to record the memory in a much more powerful way, I think, than I did in the past, which was just written notes. It is so easy to take a video of these birds yeah. these yeah. days in ways that I would never have imagined the first time that I, I traveled to the tropics. Um, you know, I was taking photos through my scope with my phone, and I, I still, I, by the time that this episode goes out, I should have them on this checklist. I don't oh, have cool. them on this checklist now, but um, so Ted, you cannot enjoy them. But I do, <laughs> I do, I do have them. I yep. do have them on my phone. I just need to get them there. It's fun. It's so much. The seeing a photo of a bird is one thing, but being able to see a video of it moving around um, is just so. I don't know. It's just really gratifying, especially if you get it singing. And, yep. um, you know, the second checklist, the Finca Candelaria checklist, we had a really fantastic experience with the streak chested ant pitta. And I don't know, maybe ant pittas are sort of passe these days now that they're feeding them worms. No, they're not lodges. passe to me, <laughs> well, but okay. <laughs> feeding right. them worms in Colombia and Ecuador and wherever. <laughs> but um, we actually had one of those kind of old fashioned, you know, old school ant pitta experiences where we heard it distantly and we followed it to where it was and we knew exactly where this bird was sitting and singing and could not get a look at it. Like it was, it was not more than maybe 10, 15 feet away from us. And we just could not find it until Carlos um, found the spot, like the one little spot where you could see through the leaves. And then we all sort of experienced that. And we're all very happy with it. And then of course the bird kind of popped out and sat on a completely exposed limb and uh, basically saying it's hard out for about five minutes. Wow. And I was able to get this little video snippet, which should be on the checklist by the time this goes out of the bird sitting there and singing. And I, it's just so neat to see it move and to see it um, do ant pitta things in a way that, you know, even a fantastic photo wouldn't necessarily get you. And, uh, yeah, it, it just it just means a lot to be able to see that. Yeah, and, um, and you can't you, you can't know what I'm about to say, but you set me up perfectly for oh, a sort of for a self promotional note for me, but also for you <laughs> and for the ABA. So, um, uh, my next entry in our uh, How to Know the Birds column, which appears you know occasionally now, um, mm-hmm. is on precisely that. It's a, a bird from a different uh, place, but um, it, oh, it's just a sneak preview. It's it's about a lemon brown flycatcher mm-hmm. that I saw, but I, I specifically go into the business of like making 
just simple handheld videos that show yeah. the bird, in this case, looking around, yawning, stretching. It's clearly watching bugs flying by. It's just yeah. so cool yeah. Yeah, to, to, to be able to get that um, in a video. And, you know, much as like we like birders like to pride ourselves on our incredible memories, you know, that stuff does start to fade. Perfect. And um, I don't have, you know, just perfect memory of what happened to me in South America, you know, in the past 20 years. But, you know, every detail of that video I made of that lemon brown flycatcher is just like indelibly etched in my mind forever. And every time I go to review it, it'll be sort of reinforced. So um, I, I know what you mean. And incidentally, I'll even just um, some of those birds get so close that like, you know, handheld cell phone videos yeah. can really help to uh, uh, reinforce the memory. Yeah, for sure. One of the things for our trip to Panama that was really um, meaningful to, really to me um, was the fact that we saw a ton of fall migrants yeah, breeding I'm so birds jealous in of you yeah, i know i was gonna I ask if you saw any well one you were there a couple weeks earlier which does make a difference when we're talking yeah. about migratory birds and two just that much farther south so perhaps the distance between you and the migratory birds um is greater than uh, than it certainly was for me but uh, we saw so many north american migrants shorebirds raptors and perhaps most meaningful uh, songbirds so many warblers uh, just about every place we went, we had one or two uh, yeah. birds that I've I've seen at home, and to see them in a place like Panama is, is it never gets old. Yeah, I have to say I was particularly jealous of your sighting of a Louisiana water yes, thrush. We had three and, of them yeah, at two yeah, different and, sites, and, and I know <laughs> that they're very early migrants, and they winter. Um, well, winter, you know, it's still summer, but you know, get 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 far south. But I, I just uh, owned up my mouth watering. Um, kind of a, a little synergy here to, to share with, uh, with the, the readers, or the, sorry, the audience is that um, at one of our um, ABA Young Birder Slack workspaces, one of mm-hmm. our uh, brilliant young birders who's actually based out of Columbia now um, said he was getting sort of uh, jealous of all of the reports of warblers migrating uh, across <laughs> eastern North America, but that he'd be seeing them pretty soon in Columbia. And he was yeah. wondering, like, how far south are people seeing these so far? And by the way, hi, Alejo, if you're listening or if you're out there. Uh, Alejo, um, I'm sorry to put him on the spot. He, he's 10 years old and he's just an incredible field ornithologist. But I was able to appoint him to your checklist, Nate. Oh, cool. With right. a, I, I, that, the particular checklist I'm thinking of had like, um, it had, I think I had one water thrush. It had like two black and white warblers. It uh-huh. had... Um, American red, red star. star. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm thinking the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so, Alejo, if you're out there, they're, they're on their way. Yeah, now, they're almost um, there. Yeah. So, uh, they, they've made it to Panama. So, it's just <laughs> one more country for them uh, to go. But yeah. No, Nate, to answer the question you originally posed to me, I didn't have any um, obvious, you know, Nearctic migrants. I wondered about some of the ospreys we saw, saw flying yeah. high. But, but who knows? I mean, they, yeah. they could absolutely be just, you know, summering birds as well. However, um, I, I, this is a little fun segue, if, if you don't mind. Um mm-hmm. Probably the rarest bird of the trip that we had, uh, way up at an, an Andean Lake, was for a widely distributed lesser scop um, in huh. August. Yeah, and in a place That's it was complete. Early. Well, no, yeah. it was August. I, I I suspect they were summering. Um, oh really? And well, that, that, that's my my my, my, huh. my guess. I I checked. Um, this is such an e- nerdy e-bird thing to do. But I, I looked at um, the continental high for the entire continent of South America for the month of August in e-bird. And the previous record was one and we had okay. four. Um, it, I mean, the, the place that we were at absolutely reminded me of like a Colorado marsh in April or something. It looked like the sort mm-hmm. of place where lesser scops should nest. So they might've been early birds, but I just wonder if they're summer or, and I'm just going to go out way out on a conjectural limb here, but if they even breed there, which would be an incredible range expansion. But um, yeah, it was pretty exciting to see four lesser scops um, in the company of like Andean gulls and other, you know, <laughs> very uh, sort of range appropriate birds like that. 
Yeah. Speaking of migrants, you know, speaking of weird migrants, we also saw a number of Austral migrants uh, in Panama as well. So gray-breasted martin uh, being one, fork-tailed flycatcher, you know, birds that are coming from the other direction for whom this is their spring migration. And they're heading back uh, south to the plains of the Pampas of Argentina to to breed, but uh, they've spent the winter in their winter. Yeah. Our summer and in, yeah, uh, it comes to the, we did have gray-breasted, and then of course the look-alike and sound-alike, a brown-chested, and I mm-hmm. to this day will always get those two mixed up in my mind. But I know that we yeah we had gray-breasted and brown-chested Mark. You know that's so. interesting that you bring up uh, getting those mistaken because that is something that we constantly dealt with too. And, you know, I, I talk a lot about I, I know we've talked on this podcast a lot about um, the fact that the Amer- birds in the Americas tend not to have as many um, honorific eponyms as they mm-hmm. do in Africa or Asia or even mm-hmm. North America, and um, you know how these sort of descriptive names are definitely better from a just a you know generally more or less objective perspective sure, but i will sure. say that uh, constantly having to deal with all these descriptive names uh, all these various colors and parts of a bird uh can cause for some very um odd uh, spoonerisms or mistakes mm-hmm. or constantly getting crested and capped and mm-hmm. and uh, headed and hooded uh mixed up uh it can be uh, it can be a, a handful when you're when you're in the tropics and there's so many of those birds worst <laughs> of all is the, with fly catchers where you're gonna have a yes, yellow brown yes. yellow chested yellow olive yellow margined yellow yeah. winged yellowish this yellow green something like that by the way i can't resist pointing out that on my checklist let me go here i have um two birds in immediate succession. One of them is the lettered Arasari, which is like one of the best named birds name. of all. Yeah. yeah, because it looks like it has like um, hieroglyphics on its bill. It's a great name. And then the next bird on my checklist is um, Lafresnes piculet, <laughs> which is this awesome bird. I mean, it's like, it's a, it's a woodpecker, but it's like yeah. the size of a hummingbird. It's tiny, but like, I'm no diss on Lafresnes. What's his name again? Sorry. Lefresne, I think. Lefresne, yeah. But like, I don't know. They should have called that the hummingbird woodpecker. Like, that's a name that would stick with me forever. Um, So, no, I I, I hear you. And um, whether it's uh, stumbling over all of those permutations of the word yellow with flycatchers or uh, or honorific (laughs) names. um, Yeah. Is, is a lot of birds, and it's easy. To a lot, lot of birds my, and a lot of names. Yeah. My favorite bizarre name is uh, this is not the name in all the checklists, but in eBird it is uh, the checker throated stipple throat, mm-hmm. which yep. is a little ant wren. Uh, yep. The only bird I know of where there are two completely different descriptions of uh, its throat pattern in the name. That's although funny, checkered yeah. and stippled are yeah, similar, I, but the different. But the checker throated stipple throat. Yeah, that that's a fun challenge. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to subject you or anybody to this, but I'm looking at inconsistencies between English names and scientific names. Sometimes, mm-hmm. like the, the birds' names mean the opposite. In, in yeah, like, there's a, there's uh, a few in, of those. Yeah, yeah they're, they're actually probably more than a few, right? I think, yeah, I think that one of the more famous ones is birds that we probably did not see. Well, actually, I saw one of them, laughing gull, which is like means black headed gull and scientific name and then the right and the other ones and then back back in the gulls like laris ridibundus or something yeah right means laughing gull exactly (laughs) yeah right so that's funny actually that's not laris anymore i can't believe i said that oh no you're right it's coraco something yeah Yeah. so whatever the new name is but yeah yeah. there you go all right So you you talked about rarities the lesser scope we actually had a we actually added a bird to the canopy Oh, wow. family's checklist, which was, mm-hmm. I don't know how often people get a chance to do that, but it was on the first checklist, the Via Bonita checklist the, mm-hmm. from the ninth, and it was um, Mountain Elania, oh, cool. which uh, yeah. apparently is a bird that is typically found, as you might expect, in higher elevations. Mm-hmm. Um, Carlos have first identified it as Lesser Elania, and he's like, eh, that's not mm-hmm. right. Can, he's like, can anyone get photos of this bird? Can anyone get photos of this yeah. bird? And eventually people did. 
um, both uh, Paul Kinzer, to whom I, who, one of the participants on our trip, to whom I am in great debt because he took uh, a number of really fantastic photos to to populate all of our eBay checklists. Uh, but Carlos put a few of his own check- photos on there, and um, yeah, you know, Elenia's. Uh, I don't even know where to begin on them half the time, but uh, yeah. apparently the the base of the bill being slightly pinkish mm. red is uh, a noteworthy thing. And uh, it was a write-in. How many write-in birds do they have on the Canopy Lodge with you know oh, thousands of birders coming cool. there over the over the decades? Yeah. Well, Lesser Scop and actually our count of Virginia rails of all things <laughs> blew up the uh, eBird checklist at that uh, <laughs> yeah. high elevation lake. Um, one bird we had that was maybe much more sort of a Columbia appropriate uh, was the uh, chestnut-bellied Cotinga, mm-hmm. which um, is uh, an ex- it's simply a rare bird. Like most quote unquote rare birds are kind of common somewhere in their range, right, but this bird right. is just really rare. Uh, and it was a um, massive physical struggle, but worth it to define the bird. And um, there are just very few records of, of this bird. Yeah. And I, I'm a little fuzzy on what I'm about to say here, but um, could be wrong on this, but it's, it's, it's a new bird. And I think it was like not a split. Like, I think it was like new to science, like, hmm in the like you know in our lifetimes you know 19 i don't know 1987 or something um like that so um and it's not one of these you know dinky little brown things that sort of looks like all the other you know peruvian amazonian (laughs) and this this and that (laughs) i mean this is like a completely honking big gloriously distinctive um cotinga uh, with a really strange vocalization Mm -hmm. and um first time I'd ever seen it, I probably goes without saying, and I imagine the last time I'll ever see it because mm-hmm. um, it takes a lot of work to see the chestnut bellied Cotinga. It was uh, basically at um, close to uh, over about 3,000 meters, 3,400 meters. So you're like, you know, 11,000 feet and wow. cold and okay. rainy and windy and slippery and rocky. And I mean, it, it was quite an effort to see the bird, but it was a uh, most satisfying when, when we did yeah, see it and hear it. We did. We had a bird sort of like that that required a little bit of effort, and it, it was not on the checklist that I sent you. But I'm going to talk about it anyway because, uh, you know, why not? Um, Rufus vented ground cuckoo, which oh, is wow. kind of the classic yeah. Panama, <laughs> where the bird that people go to Panama to see for the most part. They, they did not disappoint. Um, Carlos had sent some guides out who had been following this ant swarm for uh, what they, they said three days by the time that we got there, and they had just been kind of following the slow progression of this army ant colony across the across this hillside uh, near the Canopy Lodge. And um, they had had two rufous-vented ground cuckoos uh, following in, in the attendance of this ant colony. And so we basically went up. It was, it was kind of a long, it, was, it wasn't a long hike, but it was a steep hike. And we went up, up on this hillside and basically sat and waited <laughs> for this army ant colony Right, to wow. intersect with us, like they sort of knew which direction they were going, and and it, it was one of these kind of wonderful experiences because like the anticipation is like slowly building from the point mm-hmm. where you yeah. get there and there's like not a ton of army ants around, and then they, the army ants are sort of increasing in in size in number, and then you start seeing things like bicolored ant bird and spotted oh, yeah. ant bird oh, flitting yeah. around. You like you know you know something cool is going on, and then you know at the at the moment at the great moment. Um, the rufous vented ground cuckoo kind of sneaks along and they get it and you know you kind of peer into the underbrush uh, you know intently until it finally shows itself and uh, everyone got a good look some people got some good photos yeah. not as good as some other experiences they sometimes people have them like running across the trail which is so yeah. bizarre as that i can hardly believe it but um we did get a good look at that classic that classic panama bird and um 
it 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 lives up to the expectation. It's much bigger than you think. Like it's, right. it's greater just, roadrunner sized. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. it's a monster. Um, we didn't have any uh, ground cuckoos, but um, mm-hmm. one cool. I, I mean, these are three not rare birds, but to have them in rapid succession was really mm-hmm. cool. We had a, a Watson, um, oh yeah, a horn screamer and a scarlet ibis. Like you know, bang, 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 uh, yeah. just like that. And those are just three of the icons of of, of that part of. Um, the world so getting oh, to see sure. those was, was really amazing and, and the horn screamer especially just um just so for perspective it, it's it's related to ducks although yeah, you would I never guess it I, I've, I've actually I, I got some decent photos and i asked some yeah. friends you know what do you think this is and like hmm, like is that a is it a grouse is it, yeah, is it a hawk yeah is it a secretary bird i mean so but it's related to ducks and geese like you would not guess that from the images but um and then they are we didn't get to hear them this time but i i they're so loud. They're just unbelievably <laughs> loud yeah. when they call. And the um, the ibis actually um, was a lifebird. I'd never seen scarlet ibis, oh, really? you know, a legit, uh, for sure, in this case, flock of scarlet <laughs> right. ibis. I mean, I've known about the scarlet ibis since, like, my childhood. I mean, how could you not know about an ibis that's all scarlet? But, like, to see them actually legit out in the wild was, uh, was new for me. Yeah. You saw greater Ani, which is another bird that we saw in Panama as well. Um I love that bird's story ever since I read about it in, in Jennifer Ackerman's uh, book, The the Bird Way, about yeah. the communal breeding strategy in which all the uh, adults lay their eggs in one big nest yeah. and then they take turns <laughs> incubating them. We didn't see any of that. But the fact that you're seeing that bird that has this kind of wonderful adaptive strategy is uh, is really appealing. Yeah. And the whole cuckoo order is just like every yeah, sure. single like breeding strategy. Oh, I didn't mean to talk about two cuckoos, but yeah. yeah, yeah no, I, I, but yeah, I mean, everything from, you know, the obligate brood parasitism of the uh, common cuckoo in Europe mm-hmm. to the, these fascinating um, yeah, communal, um, you know, sort of female-based um, mating systems. Um, we, we, we saw just a handful of um, graders where they really pile on thick is like when you're far, really deep into the heart of Amazonia and like mm-hmm. they just, you know, just you're constantly seeing groups, you know, clamoring about the trees and flying across clearings. Um, the thing I like about that greater Ani, by the way, um, is that eye. It's just like, yeah, it's like this yeah. evil, I know, sinister, glowering. It's what is that kind of like? It's just pure white. It's a kind of a, I don't know, co- but it's, it's definitely pale. Yeah. Um, right. Um, I don't know whether it's then, white or yellow, but it's, we, it's something. We, on the whole, we saw many more smooth-billed onis, and smooth-billed mm-hmm. onis are cool birds. But you know, when you see a greater oni with that that eye, that's pretty pretty striking. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting because usually by the time you see a greater ani, ani at least when we were in Panama, is you've seen a lot of smooth-billed onis at that point, mm-hmm. and yep. then you know this other thing kind of flies up and it's you know massive and it's much bigger, and, right? Yeah, and yeah, the bill looks bigger even though it's smaller on the face of the bird, and it, yep. it's 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 yeah, it's impressive. It's an impressive thing. One thing about the uh, my experience, and I alluded to it at the very beginning here, was that um, I was the only birder or journalist or other representative from the entire continent of North America, mm-hmm. uh, and it was um, it was refreshing uh, to be in the presence of people who don't necessarily see the world through my uh, ABA area centric sure. and also North sure. American centric. Uh, so I'm definitely including Mexico, but really the rest of middle America uh, in there. So I really enjoyed the conversations with my uh, companions. I won't rattle off their, all their names uh, right now, but uh, talking about um, for the most part, there's so many things that we share in common, just our, our mm-hmm. wonder at, at birds, whether they're um, swallow-tailed kites or even kiskadees. I'm trying to think of you know, something really, really familiar to me or something that none of us, including I think most of our guides had seen before, like the chestnut-bellied uh, cotinga. So just that uh, that shared sort of wonder at the way the world works. But it was also really interesting to talk about some uh, some co- sort of birding cultural differences as mm-hmm. well. And it's, it's just always a I, I commend to anybody uh, from the ABA area or elsewhere to uh, you know get 
get out and meet folks who um, watch birds like you do, but um, but not in the same part of the world that you do. Were they birders that had experienced the neotropics before? So, of course, the Colombians had. I mean, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and after that, it was sort of a mix. Uh, yeah. We had several folks in our group uh, who had never been outside of uh, Europe before. Oh, wow. hmm. um, and then others who, uh, like me, you know, had uh, South American experience but hadn't been in Colombia before. Mm-hmm. And a few who, you know, already had, you know, close to a thousand species on their Colombian life list mm-hmm. and were just trying to, you know, add, you know, three or four uh, extra. So I skewed more in that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we had folks uh, for whom um, the new world, the Americas were brand new. Yeah. And uh, that was really uh, exciting as well. Yeah, I found that to be the case as well. I mean, not that the, the Americas were brand new, all of my, all of my, all the participants on this trip, all my companions were birders that were from North America, but um, many of them, most maybe even, had never visited the tropics before, or never birded south of you know Mexico um, before, and um, to to see them experience some of these like you know charismatic neotropic bird families like motmots and toucans and and uh, you know. They, groups of birds that are are pretty common that you can encounter without too much difficulty in these places but nonetheless are absolutely you know breathtaking birds to look at for any length of time was um was really a lot of fun yeah. um i i've had the good fortune to bird in the tropic a fair amount of time including uh, several other countries in in central america and um boy it never gets old watching someone get a good look at a keelville toucan for the first time yeah. I, it's 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 a breathtaking bird there's no two ways I, about I, it i know what you mean and i have this kind of little uh, i don't know like guilty pleasure i guess mm-hmm. of um being with um an old worlder uh, when that person sees their first uh, hummingbird yeah um, right and because hummingbirds i, I mean I, you could make the argument they're like they're like like the it. most I, exactly <laughs> like, i mean hummingbirds might be you know on a you know bird group by bird group basis like the most distinctive birds on earth and by the way um it goes both ways i mean I'll never forget my first bee eater or my mm-hmm. first sunbird. I mean, there are some incredibly cool birds Hornbills on the other side. Hornbills, <laughs> right, right, on the other side of the pond as well. Um, but yeah, there's just something about being with an old worlder when they lay eyes on a hummingbird for the first time. I mean, everybody knows what a hummingbird is, even if you never left Europe or Asia. But mm-hmm. to see a hummingbird actually like doing its thing is just so cool. And I have to say, that applies to me as well. I mean, every <laughs> time when I see the first hummingbird of the spring, it's like, whoa, that's, oh, yeah, that, that's a real thing. Wow. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. People can find these checklists. I will include them in the show notes. Uh, you can peruse them as we did and marvel at some of the bird species we were fortunate enough to see. Um, if you're interested in traveling with ABA Travel, not just to Panama, but to other places in the neotropics, please look into our uh, our, our offerings on aba.org slash travel. Um, you can find Ted God, wherever ABA is doing stuff, Ted, you're all over the place. And um, as as always, it is a great pleasure to talk to you about uh, about eBird and uh, just birding in general. Um, thanks for your time. Nate, thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah. it. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and if you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. You get a lot of benefits like magazines, discounts to our partners, opportunities to travel with us. You can get more information at aba.org slash 
join. Special shout-outs to Olivia Botch of Indianapolis, Indiana, Keely Cable of St. Paul, Minnesota, Jason Christopher of Sammamish, Washington, Brophy Lee of Everett, Washington, James Moore of Nieces, South Carolina, Ian Mowat, and family of Kingfield, Maine, and William Otis of Appison, Tennessee. All from recently joined the ABA, noted the podcast as the reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive Director of the ABA and Executive Producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who wants to make clear that Ted Floyd was birding in Columbia, the nation, not birding in Columbia, the capital of South Carolina, though notes that one has Putumayo and the other Putumayo in the egg salad, so long as it's Dukes, not Miracle Whip. Technical production is by John Lowry, who also handles advertisements and wonders if Ted Floyd would like to bird in Columbia. By that, he means the outdoors brand that makes vests with lots of pockets following a massive ad buy. Additional help with social media comes from George Munoz, who wonders if Columbia University isn't missing an opportunity to change their mascot to the Horn Screamers. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. But on Twitter, we are at ABA. Ted made a big deal about the greater Ani, and, and they're nice for sure. But I, I fear he got ripped off because when I was younger, Columbia House would give me 21 Anis for a penny. Questions, comments can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.